Well, good morning, friends, and good morning, those of you joining us online. It is good to be here with you again, and I want to just thank you personally for the opportunity you have given me to continue to pastor here at Paznaz. Many of you know that my full-time job is as a professor at Fuller, and I was thinking about titles just the other day. At, when I'm at work at Fuller, people call me doctor all the time, but here you call me pastor, and doctor is something I earned, but pastor is something you've given me. I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for that. I also want to say before I get started, speaking Jesus, I speak Jesus. Allie, get out of town. That song, come on. Wow. Don't you wish we all spoke Jesus? And I love to see the youth, the youth up here leading, and then there's Fred. But the youth are great to see up here. Thank you for that ministry. We are going through the Bible this whole year, and we find ourselves in Exodus today. Exodus chapter 20, God's 10 best words for living. And we're going to juxtapose that with John, uh, uh, the Gospel of John this morning. And um, uh, it should be, there's several mistakes in your worship folder, and I take all the responsibility for those, okay? So we're going to, I think they're right on the screen. We're going to read Exodus 20, 1 through 17, and then we're going to read John 2. We're going to read John 2, 13 through 17, okay? So it should be right on the, the screen up there this morning. Hear the words of the Lord. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who has used his name that way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals or the immigrant who is living with you. Because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not desire your neighbor's house, do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And we turn to John's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were selling cattle, sheep, and doves, as well as those involved in exchanging currency sitting there. He made a whip from ropes and chased them all out of the temple, including the cattle and the sheep. He scattered the coins and overturned the tables of those who exchanged currency. He said to the dove sellers, get these things out of here. 
Don't make my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Passion for your house consumes me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we're traveling through this ark, this story of God, as we preach through the Bible this year, we can't stop at every place. (laughs) But we can try to string them together. And we have to keep remembering the context that we come to every Sunday. And so we come to these famous commandments in Exodus 20, or what some theologians call the ten great words. And we have to remember what's happening, right? That Moses has received the divine name. God has delivered God's people from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. And they have gone out into the wilderness. And they have complained. And God has provided. And they have complained some more. And they've had some skirmishes with people around them, and God has delivered them. And they have complained. (laughs) Moses is already tired as a leader. We'd say in his days, getting a lot of emails, right, from, from his people, from the Israelites. So before we come to this moment in Exodus 20, we have to remember that the Israelites are, in fact, wandering in the wilderness. And that term wandering in the wilderness is something that we have appropriated and begin to think about and talk about and use as something to describe some of our own experiences, isn't it? So this morning, I want to just pause for a second and wonder, does anybody feel like they're wandering in the wilderness? It's a wilderness time, isn't it? In some of our lives and in the world we live in, it's a wilderness time. Has anybody felt like they've lost their way this morning? Has anybody felt like they've lost something? That maybe they're grieving something? Well, make no mistakes, the Israelites are wandering. But maybe the problem isn't always that we've lost our way, but we've lost God's way. You know there's a difference, right? So here they are, here we are, wandering. And here it comes in verse 2. You ready for it? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Come on, people. Any Pentecostals in the room this morning? Because if you were, you'd be amening right now. Anybody need to be delivered from Egypt this morning? Anybody need to be delivered from their own personal house of slavery? Maybe I should phrase that differently. Anybody not need to be delivered this morning? Well, Here's God once again, what we're going to tell you through this whole sermon series. Here is this God once again, this relentless God who is always and forever relentlessly moving towards God's people. We wander, we get lost, we find ourselves in Egypt, we find ourselves in slavery, and God keeps calling us back saying, this is what you were made for. And I want you to notice something this morning, friends. I want you to notice this. 
that before the commandment is the rescue. I'm going to say it again. You're making me angry. (laughs) Before the commandment is the rescue. Can I get an amen? Amen. Before the rules, there is salvation. Do you hear that this morning? Because some of you were raised differently than that, and I want to capture that like a spirit of evil and crush it this morning. Listen to this, friends. It's not do this and I will love you, save you, and rescue you. It's the other way around. You've been saved. Now live this way. Because these are the ten best words to live by. Are you with me now? I'm going to need extra pay for today. I should pray the benediction and just send you home right now, shouldn't I? You've gotten enough. Just go and meditate on that, but I'm not going to do that. Because some of you will feel like you didn't get your money's worth. But what you can be happy about is I promise I'm not going to break down all ten this morning, okay? That's just going to take too long. I'm not going to break all ten down. What I want to try to do this morning is to describe to you three themes in these ten best words. Three themes that emerge from these ten best words and juxtapose them with this moment in Jesus' life that we just heard in John 2. The first theme is a theme about wisdom. The first three commandments say this, no other gods, no images of God, and don't use God's name in vain. Those are the first three, right? Let me quote this to you from Walter Brueggemann. The three commandments together are a vision of a God who is beyond our usefulness, who cannot be recruited for our pet projects, who cannot be reduced to our preferred notions because this God is holy and beyond the reach of our ideological passions and commitments. The command not to take God's name in vain is not about bad language. It means rather that God cannot be used as a pious cover for our actions and purposes. God is not a patron of our nation or our war or our church or our morality or our productivity. God is out of reach for use or management. I wonder if Jesus had this in mind. As he empties the temple of those who would turn it into something based on their own wisdom and for their own gain. Jesus is having all the feels. Is that right, Melissa? Do we still say that, Pastor Melissa? No, we don't say it. No, okay, sorry. The theme is about wisdom. That theme is about wisdom. But the question I have for us again, friends, is it God's wisdom or our wisdom that we're living by? The second theme is a theme about power. Now, the center of the ten best ways of living, many scholars say to us, is not five. I mean, I know that seems like the center. You know, there's ten. It should be five. But the center, in many ways, theologians tell us, is the, 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 the living of the Sabbath. Word number four. Again, quoting Brueggemann, Sabbath is a marker in time to assert that our time is not our own. And we cannot order our world or our lives 24-7 in order to get ahead in the world. But we do this, don't we? In the West, particularly, we are obsessed with the future. 
We're obsessed with time. Some of you are watching the time right now. Man, I hope he's done in time. We worry about wasting time. Anybody? Not having enough time? Losing time? Where did the, all the time go? Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Time is short and time flies. And somehow we have bought the lie that somehow we can control time. We can manage time. And slowly but surely we've bought the lie that, that somehow we can be in control, that we can make things happen, that we can get the power. That somehow we provide our daily bread, that we cause the sun to rise and to set. We've bought the lie that we are the source of power. I know we would never say that, but we live our lives as if it's true. Are you with me? Now, nowhere I think is this more clearly seen than in our deep sense of discontentment as a people. We're never content. Because we're always thinking about what's next. What we should be doing. Or what we should be controlling. Or how we can get the power for the next thing. Now, maybe you think I'm overstating this, and maybe I am a little bit. But let me ask you a question. Do any of you ever worry about the future? How much do you worry? Do any of you live in a kind of sustained 24-7 space of anxiety? Do you spend lots of time thinking about how you could maybe get out ahead of the potential trouble that might just be around the corner? Let me ask you this. Do you spend an inordinate amount of time scaring yourself by watching the news feeds that fuel your anxiety and tell you what to fear, who is the problem, who to mistrust, who is dangerous, and maybe even who to hate? Do you ever think that if maybe we could just acquire enough information accomplish enough, or make enough, or achieve enough, we might just be okay. Anybody ever feel that way? Alone, at night, in bed with the lights off. <laughs> you see, the Sabbath, which is a day specifically to not produce, reminds us that all of that is God's job, not ours. God is more interested in unemployed ravens and flowers than time, production, control, and power. Jesus asks us to consider them. In the temple, Jesus too seems to be saying something. There's something that you're missing, he seems to say. You've managed to turn Yahweh's righteous religious rituals into a commodification. You're exercising your power here, but I won't have it, Jesus says. Maybe we could all benefit from God's speech at the end of Job. You remember it? When God shows up and reminds Job and reminds us that we were not there at the beginning of the earth's foundations. Friends, there's only one God and you're not it. Take the day off. The third theme is about wealth. The ten best words end with that last, but certainly not least, thou shall not covet. Now, the Common English Bible version, which I just read to you, makes it much more personal. It says this, don't desire what isn't yours. Quoting Bergamot again, this command does not refer to little acts of envy, 
Rather, it refers to big economic commitments that issue in the conviction that there's no limit to what one can and ought to and should accumulate. More property, bigger houses, better cars, more trips to Europe, etc., etc., etc. Again, maybe Jesus is protesting this in John chapter 2, essentially saying, don't reduce your common life to an economic rat race. It's not what you were created to be. Now, let's admit this together, can we? The, the, the topic of wealth is a tricky one to talk about for sure. Because my guess is nobody in this room and nobody online watching is going to say, yeah, Pastor Brad, I'm wealthy. I am wealthy. I have no worries, no concerns. I got plenty of money. I am wealthy. No one says that, right? But I'm wondering if the acquisition of stuff doesn't have to be limited just to the things that we can purchase with money. How do we gather a certain kind of metaphorical wealth or acquisition around ourselves? Like, what about the, the acquisition of people who think just like me? Let me get a bunch of those people all around me. Or ideologies I agree with. Ooh, so let's put this and I'll put that, I'll put that over here in my box and I've acquired it. Wealth. Or what about trophies? Or accolades, or knowledge, or entertainment against our boredom, or prestige. Aren't all of these a kind of acquisition of wealth as well? You might not be able to cash them in at the store, but they do something for you, don't they? Provide something for your sense of who you are. Now what I want to say today is that the misuse of these three themes I think is easy to see in our culture. For example, the misuse of theme one, wisdom, can be seen today when God's name is used in vain in our cultural wars. When we say God is for this and not for that. Pro-God, anti-God. We've got to be really careful, friends, if we're reading the ten best words right. The misuse of theme two, power, can be seen when we are caught in an endless cycle of production and consumption. And the misuse of theme three, wealth, can be seen in our culture as, as coveting or showing up in our policies that support greed at great cost to those who have very little. So I think that the misuse of these three themes is even easy to see in our culture, but they're actually difficult to detect in ourselves and our own lives. And that's because they're the air we breathe. They're the water that we swim in. And maybe that's why Jesus had to sweep into the temple in such a dramatic way and overturn all the, temp all, all the tables because nobody was going to get it with his words. <laughs> I just keep hoping Jesus doesn't do that now. Well, if he did, what would it look like? And would we miss it? Now, let me also be clear about the ten words. These ten words, these commandments, are really not for everyone. You need to know that this morning. That's why, to me, it makes no sense to make statues of them and put them in public places. As if everyone agrees with them. As if everyone believes them. Because they don't. 
You see, these 10 best words for living are not for everyone. They're for the community of the faithful that intends to live their life according to the purposes of God. They're for us. The question is, what do we do with them? Now, this is why Walter Brueggemann suggests that we should move our language from command to call. From command to call. We're not commanded to live these ways. We are called to live these ways as a faithful and different people in the world. And that's different. And if people can't tell the difference between us and them, then maybe we're not living them right. You still with me? All right, so as Pastor Joe would say, this is where I might get in trouble. If I haven't already gotten in trouble. I'm worried about the future of the church. Now, I'm not just talking about Paznaz. I'm talking about the church in North America. In fact, in the South, the church is blowing up, friends. You know that? In the Southern Hemisphere of the world. <laughs> There's a revival going on there. They're sending missionaries up here to try to get us to follow God rightly. Did you know that? Someday a missionary is going to walk in our church <laughs> and preach the gospel to us. And it's going to be like, is it, is, it, is it King Josiah going, where has this been the whole time? Okay, I'm in trouble. But I'm worried about the church. Go ahead, look around. What do you see? Folks, we're not getting any younger. Some of us are not going to be around for much longer. You know, we say we want young people and young families in, the midst, in our midst, but the truth is, the research done by the Pew Foundation is showing that young people are leaving the church in droves. They're leaving. I know there's some churches that are growing. I know there's some churches that have a very youth vibe to them. But in general, young people are leaving. And I have this terrible sinking feeling that it's because many young people are saying some version of this. I just don't see how your faith, now they're talking to us, is relevant to my everyday life. I just don't see how your faith is relevant to my everyday life. Now, perhaps that's because we haven't taught them how being a Christian makes a difference in their day-to-day -day lives. Maybe we haven't taught them how being a follower of Jesus makes a difference for the world. You remember the story we've been talking about here? God chooses Israel not because God just wants to have a holy bless me club over here with Israel. But God chooses Israel and said, you will be my light to all the nations. Guess who gets to inherit that? We do. Have we? Are we? Do we take it seriously? Do we think about that? How are we to be and make a difference for the world? Instead of caring for God's people and God's creation, we've often taught our young people to fear those outside the church. And we've modeled to them a kind of hypocrisy where we say we're different from the culture, when in reality we spend much of our time villainizing those outside the church, while in our day-to-day -day lives we act exactly like them. I think we pursue the same wisdom, the same power, and the same wealth in many ways. And I'm preaching to me too. Okay? 
I think we've lost our calling to the 10 best words. And in so doing, we have not embodied a different way of being in the world. But in the midst of all this, the 10 best words, these commandments, which of course are symbolic for Yahweh's way of being with Yahweh's people, these these 10 best words are giving us a call to be different. It's a call to be a different community, a different culture. But it doesn't mean demonizing the culture out there. It means caring for it, loving it, speaking Jesus. Friends, how did Jesus interact with the world around him? He loved it. He moved towards it. He wasn't afraid of it. He touched the unclean and had dinner with sinners and got in all sorts of trouble with his religious friends. When's the last time you got in trouble with your religious friends? I'm getting in trouble this morning, Pastor Joe. Probably. You see, I think our young people want to see, our young families want to see, how does your faith cause you to be different in and for the world? In and for the world. I want to leave you with a picture this morning. I want you to put up my, there she is. That's Daisy. Some of you have heard me talk about Daisy before. I call her our empty nest dog. Uh, she's been with us about two and a half, almost three years now, I guess. Uh, shortly after our last son went off to college, Suzanne decided we needed a dog. This dog has ruined my empty nest vibe. I've told you that before. Um, we used to, I, when, when our kids were gone, man, I was, I was kind of loving it. I mean, I love my kids. Miss you. They're not watching. Um, <laughs> Once in a while, one of mine watched, and I'm like, what happened? Did the moon align with something? Um, and uh, uh, so, so we decided we had, well, and, and so when we didn't have the kids, I mean, I just loved, like, going out, and, like, after, after work, we'd meet and go to dinner, and we'd stay out late, I mean, if 8 o'clock's late, and we would, you know, if we were going to go away for the weekend, it was awesome, we're just take, we're, and now everything's changed, right? We got to get home for the dog, we got to make sure the dog's okay, and feed the dog, and blah, 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 the dog, and if we want to go out of town, we got to find someone to take care of the dog, it's a whole thing, right? Ruined my emptiness vibe, but look at that dog. She's kind of got into my heart. She's a shelter dog, so she's kind of traumatized, right? Most shelter dogs come with some baggage. We don't know all that her baggage was, but I know when she came to us, she kind of had trouble playing. Like, she didn't quite get playing like a lot of puppies do, right? And so, like, you know, wrestling and and nipping and biting and tug-of-war and all that kind of stuff. Daisy would look at you like, what's wrong with you? Why are you showing me these things? I don't understand what's happening here. And it took a while. Eventually, she got fetch. I mean, it's kind of fetch. Like, I throw something, she gets it, she runs by me. Uh, into another room, and then I go get it from her, right? That's kind of how, that's, we know the rules. It's okay. We figured it out. But we also figured out that Daisy only likes particular kinds of toys. She's very, very particular. She's such a diva, such a princess. And so she only likes these kind of, they're, they're basically like little stuffed animals for dogs, right? They're real soft, they're real furry, and, and, and they're squishy, and they got inside that little ear, ear. They got that little squeaker in there. You know it, right? That's pretty much all she likes for the most part. And so, you know, we got to the point where we could throw one of those and she would go get it and she'd bring it back and we'd play with it and we even, she'd even tug a war with it a little bit once in a while. And we noticed that she would, she'd get attached to one, right? She'd like take it up on the bed with her at night. And sometimes at the end of the night when we'd take her out for the last time in the evening, she'd grab that thing and take it with her outside like it was a teddy bear. 
right? But something funny always happens with Daisy in these toys. So she'll choose one, she'll get attached to one, she'll select it, she'll sort of care for it, love on it, and bring it with her. And then about three or four weeks in, Suzanne and I might be in the living room watching TV, and Daisy's been in the bedroom doing whatever, and then she kind of comes on out. She has a real pleased look on her face, if dogs can have a pleased look. If you've had a dog, you know what I'm talking about, right? She comes out in her tail's wagon, she just looks like she's really, she's really done something great. She's really accomplished something. She's quite proud of herself. And sure enough, we go in the bedroom, and she has taken that precious little toy and torn it to bits. She has ripped it till it's nothing but a, 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 you know, a casing, and then there's just all that, that furry stuff or what, uh, cotton balls all over the place, and then that sad little squeaky thing. Here, here, here. Friends, I'm afraid sometimes that we have treated the faith that way. We've treated church that way. It's been real important to us, hasn't it? It's saved us. It's changed our lives. It's made us new creatures. We, we, we love it. We've given to it. We've, we've given our time and our energy and our money to it. And, and we just love it and we love it so much. And we play with it and we keep it and we close it in. And then we eventually just squeeze the life out of it. And sometimes we tear it apart. There's nothing left but a husk and that little heart squeaky thing, barely beating. We've forgotten how to play rightly with it. We've forgotten why it was given to us. We've forgotten the call that was put on us, not just to, to, to do these commands, but live into a call. Because really, friends, they are the ten best ways to live. It's a communion Sunday. We had it last Sunday, but we're doubling up. We must really need it. This is a ritual, isn't it? It's a, it's a practice. It means so many things. But this morning, I, I want us to think about it in remembrance of the call upon our lives to live a certain way. You see, the ten best words get lived out and embodied in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? Jesus, the good Jew. Jesus living according to Yahweh, to his Father. We need to come together regularly as a body to be reminded of this call. And we need to practice this meal together. So as one pastor used to say around here, so that we might eventually become what we eat. The very image and likeness of Jesus in the world. Our young people are watching. Young families are watching. What will they see? What will we show them? How will we be different from the world? And how will we be different in and to the world for the sake of the world?